If you are interested in learning more about the Supreme Court, there's really no better way to do that than to read the opinions the justices write. But, if you're a little new to reading SCOTUS opinions, the Public Information Office of the Supreme Court provides the public with helpful general information contained within the About the Court tab of the court's official website, supremecourt.gov. I'll be reading some of that information in a series of four bonus episodes, The Supreme Court at Work, The Justices, History and Traditions, and an entire episode dedicated to the most helpful frequently asked questions answered on the website. In today's episode, the third in the series, I'll be reading about the history and traditions of the Supreme Court and its iconic building. Links to the text have been included in the episode description. Enjoy. The Court and Its Traditions For all of the changes in its history, the Supreme Court has retained so many traditions that it is, in many respects, the same institution that first met in 1790, prompting one legal historian to call it the first court still sitting. Justices have perpetuated the tradition of longevity of tenure. The record for length of service is held by Justice William O. Douglas, who retired in 1975 following more than 36 years and six months on the court. Justice Stephen J. Field holds the record for second-longest tenure, discharging his duties for more than 34 years and six months. Justice John Paul Stevens, who retired in 2010, ranks just below Justice Field. The record for fourth-longest length of service belongs to Chief Justice John Marshall, making him the longest-tenured Chief Justice in the Court's history. As is customary in American courts, the nine justices are seated by seniority on the bench. The Chief Justice occupies the center chair, the Senior Associate Justice sits to his right, and the second senior to his left, and so on alternating right and left by seniority. Since at least 1800, it has been traditional for justices to wear black robes while in court. Chief Justice Jay and, apparently, his colleagues lent a colorful air to the earlier sessions by wearing robes with a red facing, somewhat like those worn by early colonial and English judges. The J-robe, trimmed with red and white on the front and sleeves, is now in the possession of the Smithsonian Institution. Initially, all attorneys wore formal mourning clothes when appearing before the court. Senator George Wharton Pepper of Pennsylvania often told friends of the incident he provoked when, as a young lawyer in the 1890s, he arrived to argue a case in street clothes. Justice Horace Gray was overheard whispering to a colleague, Who is that beast who dares to come in here with a gray coat? 
Today, the tradition of formal dress is followed only by Department of Justice and other government lawyers who serve as advocates for the United States government. Quill pens have remained part of the courtroom scene. White quills are placed on council tables each day that the court sits, as was done at the earliest sessions of the court. The judicial handshake has been a tradition since the days of Chief Justice Melville W. Fuller in the late 19th century, when the justices assembled to go on the bench each day and at the beginning of the private conferences at which they discuss decisions. Each justice shakes hands with each of the other eight. Chief Justice Fuller instituted the practice as a reminder that differences of opinion on the court did not preclude overall harmony of purpose. The Supreme Court has a traditional seal, which is similar to the Great Seal of the United States, but which has a single star beneath the eagle's claws, symbolizing the Constitution's creation of one Supreme Court. The seal of the Supreme Court of the United States is kept in the custody of the clerk of the court and is stamped on official papers, such as certificates given to attorneys newly admitted to practice before the Supreme Court. The seal now used is the fifth in the court's history. The Court as an Institution The Constitution elaborated neither the exact powers and prerogatives of the Supreme Court nor the organization of the judicial branch as a whole. Thus it was left to Congress and to the justices of the court, through their decisions, to develop the federal judiciary and a body of federal law. The establishment of a federal judiciary was a high priority for the new government, and the first bill introduced in the United States Senate became the Judiciary Act of 1789. The act divided the country into 13 judicial districts, which were in turn organized into three circuits, the Eastern, Middle, and Southern. The Supreme Court, the country's highest judicial tribunal, was to sit in the nation's capital and was initially composed of a chief justice and five associate justices. For the first 101 years of the Supreme Court's life, but for a brief period in the early 1800s, the justices were also required to ride circuit and hold circuit court twice a year in each judicial district. The Supreme Court first assembled on February 1, 1790, in the Exchange Building in New York City, then the nation's capital. Chief Justice John Jay was, however, forced to postpone the initial meeting of the court until the next day, since due to transportation problems, some of the justices were not able to reach New York until February 2nd. The earliest sessions of the court were devoted to organizational proceedings. The first cases reached the Supreme Court during its second year, and the justices handed down their first opinion on August 3rd, 1791, in the case of West v. Barnes. During its first decade of existence, the Supreme Court rendered some significant decisions and established lasting precedents. However, the first justices complained of the court's limited stature. They were also concerned about the burdens of riding circuit under primitive travel conditions. 
Chief Justice John Jay resigned from the court in 1795 to become governor of New York, and despite the pleading of President John Adams, could not be persuaded to accept reappointment as Chief Justice when the post again became vacant in 1800. Consequently, shortly before being succeeded in the White House by Thomas Jefferson, President Adams appointed John Marshall of Virginia to be the fourth Chief Justice. This appointment was to have a significant and lasting effect on the court and the country. Chief Justice Marshall's vigorous and able leadership in the formative years of the court was central to the development of its prominent role in American government. Although his immediate predecessors had served only briefly, Marshall remained on the court for 34 years and five months, and several of his colleagues served for more than 20 years. Members of the Supreme Court are appointed by the President subject to the approval of the Senate. To ensure an independent judiciary and to protect judges from partisan pressures, the Constitution provides that judges serve during good behavior, which has generally meant life terms. To further assure their independence, the Constitution provides that judges' salaries may not be diminished while they are in office. The number of justices on the Supreme Court changed six times before settling at the present total of nine in 1869. Since the formation of the court in 1790, there have been only 17 chief justices and 104 associate justices, with justices serving for an average of 16 years. The Supreme Court Building The Republic endures, and this is the symbol of its faith. These words, spoken by Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes in laying the cornerstone for the Supreme Court building on October 13, 1932, express the importance of the Supreme Court in the American system. Yet surprisingly, despite its role as a co-equal branch of government, the Supreme Court was not provided with a building of its own until 1935, the 146th year of its existence. Initially, the court met in the Merchants Exchange Building in New York City. When the national capital moved to Philadelphia in 1790, the court moved with it, establishing chambers first in the State House and later in the City Hall. When the federal government moved in 1800 to the permanent capital, Washington, the District of Columbia, the court again moved with it. Since no provision had been made for a Supreme Court building, Congress lent the court space in the new Capitol building. The court was to change its meeting place a half-dozen times within the Capitol. Additionally, the court convened for a short period in a private house after the British set fire to the Capitol during the War of 1812. Following this episode, the court returned to the Capitol and met from 1819 to 1860 in a chamber now restored as the Old Supreme Court Chamber. Then from 1860 until 1935, the court sat in what is now known as the Old Senate Chamber. Finally, in 1929, 
Chief Justice William Howard Taft, who had been President of the United States from 1909 to 1913, persuaded Congress to end this arrangement and authorize the construction of a permanent home for the court. Architect Cass Gilbert was charged by Chief Justice Taft to design a building of dignity and importance, suitable for its use as the permanent home of the Supreme Court of the United States. Neither Taft nor Gilbert survived to see the Supreme Court building completed. Construction proceeded under the direction of Chief Justice Hughes and architects Cass Gilbert Jr. and John R. Rockart. The construction, begun in 1932, was completed in 1935 when the court was finally able to occupy its own building. The classical Corinthian architectural style was selected because it best harmonized with nearby congressional buildings. The building was designed on a scale in keeping with the importance and dignity of the court and the judiciary as a co-equal, independent branch of the United States government, and as a symbol of the national ideal of justice in the highest sphere of activity. The general dimensions of the foundation are 385 feet from east to west, or front to back, and 304 feet from north to south. At its greatest height, the building rises four stories above the terrace or ground floor. Marble was chosen as the principal material to be used, and $3 million worth was gathered from foreign and domestic quarries. Vermont marble was used for the exterior, while the four inner courtyards are of crystalline-flaked white Georgia marble. Above the basement level, the walls and floors of all corridors and entrance halls are either wholly or partially of creamy Alabama marble. The wooden offices throughout the building, such as doors, trim, paneled walls, and some floors, is American-quartered white oak. The court building cost less than the $9,740,000 Congress authorized for its construction. Not only was the final and complete cost of the building within the appropriation, but all furnishings were also procured, even though planners had initially expected that the project would require additional appropriations. Upon completion of the project, $94,000 was returned to the Treasury. We've come to the end of the episode. Until next time, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.